If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Tonight on Revolt Black News. This is C-Murder. I'm locked up. I'm an innocent man. Murder rap for C-Murder. The No Limit rapper is serving a life sentence for a crime he says he didn't commit. Could new evidence help him get a new trial? There was nothing about any DNA, no surveillance video. There's no physical evidence. Why celebrities like Kim Kardashian are fighting for his freedom. Your problem is that you really want to be a white girl. You really don't even want to be black. Black card revoked? A recent fight between Jocelyn Hernandez and Amber Rose raises the question, who is black enough? I'm black. I'm absolutely black. Why didn't black accept me? Obama is not a black man because his mama is a white woman. Who can claim blackness and who can't? We don't want that person speaking for us because they have dual allegiances to other cultures. Then... Suicide is the third leading cause of death for young black men between the ages of 18 and 24. Barbershop therapy. I can exhibit to you all how we can break through our pain. The new way some black men are prioritizing their mental health. It was the first time I've ever heard a black man talk about his struggles with mental health. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. and welcome to the show. I'm Mara Escampo. We begin tonight with a look into the conviction of No Limit rapper C. Murda. In 2003, C. Murda, born Corey Miller, was given a life sentence for the murder of 16-year-old Steve Thomas. Miller has maintained his innocence, but over the last few years, new evidence has emerged. Prosecution witnesses have changed and recanted their stories, and Miller is fighting for a new trial. Now, high-profile lawyers like Ben Crump and celebrities like Kim Kardashian have taken up his cause. What's up, y'all? This is C. Murder. I'm locked up. I'm an innocent man. I'm an innocent man. I'm still fighting this case. They're gonna let me out. They're gonna let me out eventually. Rapper Corey C. Murder Miller speaking from Louisiana's Elaine Hunt Correctional Center, where he's serving a life sentence for the 2002 murder of 16-year-old Stephen Thomas. Corey has always maintained his innocence. I've been snatched away from my family, from raising my game, and um, from my career, from everything. And I just want it back. Corey's longtime fight for a new trial has gotten new life since the two eyewitnesses who testified against him have recanted their testimony. If you're with me, it's a Born in New Orleans in 1971, C-Murder gained fame as part of his older brother Master P's label, No Limit Records, and released multiple hit solo albums in the late 90s and early 2000s, including Life or Death and Bossolini. When it comes to rappers, when it comes to hip-hop artists, a lot of times, particularly in the legal realm, whatever they're rapping about becomes solely and wholly attributable to them. And that can be highly problematic when you end up on trial or in some legal realm dealing with criminal culpability. Everything changed on the night of January 12th, 2002, when Stephen Thomas, who idolized the rapper, was beaten by a group of men and fatally shot inside Louisiana's Platinum Nightclub. 
The original 911 call was made by witness Darnell Jordan, who was the bouncer on duty that night. But according to legal documents filed by the state, Darnell Jordan did know who shot Thomas, claiming he was about three feet away from the incident when, quote, he saw the gun flash from the end of the defendant's arm, later telling detectives that the shooter was seen murder. A second witness, Kenneth Jordan, no relation to Darnell, testified he was about six feet away when, quote, the defendant stood over the victim and shot him once. Both Kenneth and Darnell identified C. Murder in a photo lineup and testified against him in court. Corey was arrested later that night, and in 2004, he was convicted of second-degree murder. But a judge granted a retrial, ruling that the prosecution withheld critical information from the defense. C. Murder was sentenced today after a jury in Jefferson Parish convicted him on second-degree murder charges. In August of 2009, based solely on the testimony of the two Jordans, the Stephen Thomas retrial resulted in a 10-2 to guilty verdict and a mandatory life sentence. A 9-3 to verdict would have acquitted Corey. There's no physical evidence. You're not hearing me say anything about them having found a gun. There was nothing about any DNA. There was no surveillance video. There certainly was no confession made by C-Murder. None of that was there. This all boiled down to the witness statements of these two primary individuals who testified to having seen the shooting. Emotions erupted as rapper C Murder's family members spilled out of the Jefferson Parish courthouse. That started multiple attempts over the years to appeal the verdict, all of which failed. I want everybody here, I thank y'all for being here today. This is this is a peaceful event. Corey got his head up, he in good spirits. It's time for him to come home, an innocent man. But a bombshell twist in June of 2018 gave Corey new life when Kenneth Jordan signed an affidavit saying Jefferson Parish deputies pressured him to lie by hanging an unrelated manslaughter charge over his head. In the affidavit, Kenneth says, quote, I know that the individual who I saw shoot the gun was not Corey Miller. Kenneth admitted that he's been living with 10 years of guilt about the false testimony. Investigation Discovery's Reasonable Doubt spoke to Kenneth and Darnell for their special episode on the case. When I could turn back the hands of time, I wouldn't have did it. In that moment, I felt like that's what I had to do. And less than a month later, another stunning admission by the second eyewitness, Darnell Jordan, who says Jefferson Parish Sheriff's detectives tricked him into naming Corey Miller as the shooter. He signed a handwritten letter filed with the district court that says, quote, I am certain that Corey Miller did not shoot Steve Thomas. I knew for sure he didn't have a gun. I knew for sure he didn't have a gun. How do you know that for sure? Because when I pulled him, his shirt went up. While this gave temporary hope to Corey and his supporters, less than a year after the witness recanted, a judge ruled that the new evidence was, quote, suspect and not enough to grant a retrial. Whenever you're saying that you lied under oath, you're now in that kind of situation where that old adage about one lie ruins a thousand truths. So it interestingly kind of puts the court in a conundrum of how am I supposed to believe you now? Like, it's just, it's not enough that you're just taking back 
what you're saying. Working on C Murder's case mm. constantly. For a long time you've been yeah. on that case, right? Yeah. What do and you do exactly? Like, is it, so what are you trying to do? Or we're trying to get him out. In 2020, Kim Kardashian became an advocate for Corey's release. Mm. And I do everything privately first. That's my strategy. So if I have to get to the governor and the attorneys, I will work privately until it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And we really have to get loud. Corey received another boost when he added noted civil rights attorneys Benjamin Crump and Ronald Hadley Jr. to his defense team. What we're hoping is just the the collective of these things, uh, those documents, the witnesses, that we would just get Corey a new trial. When we talk about Kim Kardashian, when we talk about Ben Crump, you're now in a position where you're trying to move on PR because as we've discussed legally, there's really nowhere else for C murder to move. I mean, it is just so incredibly difficult to overturn a guilty verdict. It just is. This is my move, the only move I can make, the only strike I can give to the state to bring awareness to my situation. I gotta face the difficulties of being in a cell, being in this dirt and filth, gotta zinc that don't work. The guy next to me got a trail that don't work. They have no towels, no sacks, no food, no toothpaste, no toothbrush, no soap. Corey has not yet been granted a retrial. In February of 2023, he went on a hunger strike to protest inhumane treatment and being placed in solitary confinement. Suffering involved, yes. Pain involved, yes. Fear involved, no. Can't stop being fearful. I would not lose, I would not falter. Gotta do what I gotta do, I gotta stand up for myself. So far, neither the Sheriff's Department nor the Jefferson Parish District Attorney's Office has commented on the case. It is just going to be tough for him because of the political landscape that we're in, even in the judiciary, right? So it's like, even when he's trying to litigate this state in the federal courts, he's gonna be doing so down in the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the most conservative judicial you know, districts in the nation, right? So I just think from a court perspective, it's going to be incredibly difficult. And if you're asking me to put my money on, does he get a new trial? I'm not putting a dime on that. I've always had this trial since I've been locked up for 16 years. And I just want them to know that my heart is mine. While Corey continues his legal battle, he says it's his three daughters who continue to give him hope that someday he will earn his freedom. The shit y'all saying is not true. I'm an innocent man. As the calls to re-examine C. Murda's case grow, Revolt Black News will continue to keep you updated on what's happening. Well, coming up, we're talking about the black card. Who gets it and who determines if it's valid or if your invitation to the cookout is about to be taken away. That's coming up after the break. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a recent episode of BET's College Hill, reality TV star Jocelyn Hernandez and Amber Rose got into a fight over Amber's racial identity. It's also a discussion we've had right here on Revolt TV's Black Girl Stuff. We've all heard the jokes about black cards and hood passes, but there is a serious conversation about who can actually claim blackness and who has the right to question your racial identity. Your problem is that you really want to be a white girl. Let's just get down to the point. Your problem is that you really don't even want to be black. 
This exchange between Jocelyn Hernandez and Amber Rose ignited a firestorm. As long as we've been in this country, there have been questions around what it means to be black and who is black enough. In 2017, Rachel Mallinson was named Miss Black University of Texas. But despite the title, she faced the painful criticism of having her blackness questioned. One moment, I'm on cloud nine, people agreed that I was worthy enough to win the title, and then the next minute, I'm not black enough and I don't deserve this. Rachel is not alone. I used to get called jungle fever all the time. If I have to be something, I, I would say I'm biracial, mulatto. I don't like saying I'm white or black. People talk about it, how much I, I hate myself, which it's amazing because most of the hatred comes from people who look like me. From the one drop rule that kept many mixed race slaves in bondage to questions about Obama's blackness. Obama is not a black man because his mama is a white woman. You can't get a black man out of a white woman. Racial identity has been a conversation and a debate for hundreds of years. But when it comes to blackness, consensus on who is seems harder to come by than who isn't. I identify as black. I'm black. I'm okay. absolutely black. A lot of y'all, I guess y'all be feeling some type of way because y'all don't really think I'm black. But Ancestry.com did tell me I was black. With black culture's influence and global reach, many who are not part of the culture now want superficial access to it. But the skepticism some people who are actually black encounter is real. I started getting tweets on Twitter and they were saying, I thought this was supposed to be a black woman. And then, you know, I responded, I was like, my dad's black, my mom's white. And they're like, oh, well, you're not black enough. Growing up, I knew I was black. I knew I was a black woman, but I often questioned why didn't black accept me? Black Girl Stuff host Brie Renee has talked at length about her experience. I grew up in the South where if you had one black parent, you black. Sparking a powerful dialogue. I feel like who gets to determine what is black? My parents are black. So does that mean that my darker sister is more black than me because I'm a lighter hue. I, I feel like it's just very disrespectful to read the comments and them saying that I'm not black. It's disrespectful not only to me, but to my mother, my father, my whole entire lineage. Online, there are even some who argue it all comes down to your family tree, restricting black identity to those with four black grandparents. I think that for us to even still be having conversations about how many black grandparents you have shows that we aren't focused on what really matters. When I was growing up, mm -hmm. like people said crazy things to her, like, who child right. are you babysitting? If you are fighting the fight for us and our culture, that should be all that matters. All of this comes at a time when there are more people in this country of African descent than ever before. According to the U.S. Census, there are almost 42 million black people defined as having African ancestry, including those of Latin and Caribbean heritage. By 2050, that number is expected to rise to 56%, an estimated 59 million, including those who identify as biracial. We talk about black people all over the world. There's black people in Asia. There's black people in um, Polynesia. We talk about the importance of understanding that black people are global. Worldwide, the number of people considered black is 1.2 billion, nearly 15% of the world's population. As America has become home to many from the African diaspora, African, Latino, and Caribbean communities also grapple with what it means to be black in America. I've always considered myself a black woman. Yeah. I am a black 
woman that was born in the island of Puerto Rico that speaks Spanish. While blackness as a global identity grows, so does resistance to who can claim it. Foundational black Americans built the United States. We were not brought to the United States. We didn't immigrate to the United States. There was no United States until foundational black Americans built it. The growing foundational black American movement seeks to establish American blackness as a unique identity, deserving its own cultural customs and protections. The reason why we have the FBA movement going so strong is because we needed to delineate to determine who's owed reparations and who's a foundational black American. Because what would happen is when we talk about reparations, you have people who look like us, but they come from an immigrant background and they're already getting benefits as an immigrant. So it was important for us to delineate they're not even owed reparations here. And for me, a black Nigerian American, it seems that they want to invalidate my experience, my upbringing, and the contributions that I've made to pushing the culture forward. Blackness is not monolithic. It's more complicated than some folks try to make it seem, whereas, and we, 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 we need the coalition build. We need to be together on a lot of things so that we can make positive change. But there's also, um, there's a beauty in the fact that our experiences aren't exactly the same. Despite calls for unity, the question of who can claim blackness is still an emotionally charged and deeply personal debate. Being black enough is a really ambiguous phrase. I know who I am and I'm black enough. When we come back, we're gonna keep the conversation going. Who's black and who's black enough? Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. We're having a real family conversation today and asking who's black enough? There's so much here to untangle and I sat down with some folks to help us unpack this issue. Joining me in this conversation now, Tanya Kateri Hernandez, author and professor of law at the Fordham University School of Law, and Tariq Nasheed, author, filmmaker, and social commentator. Thank you both for being here. So how much of Blackness has to do with this shared African-American experience, like your Black card, so to speak? This is why we now have a movement, the Foundational Black American Movement, instead of using the term African-American. And we're now saying, hey, if you are going to claim Blackness, what type of Blackness are you claiming? Because sometimes people claim Blackness in a conditional context. They are Black when they can get something out of it as a minority. And when it's time to get some other benefits from the dominant society, they will distance themselves from Blackness. Who has the right to designate someone's Blackness? So, for example, if Amber Rose wants to self-identify as Black or as biracial, who has the right to tell her she's not? Well, the ethnic group in, in question, they have a right to do that because for a long time, and there's interviews online where Amber Rose is going out of her way to make very clear she's not a Black woman. I do not consider myself a Black woman. Absolutely not. She just was very, very clear. I am not a Black woman. I'm not a Black woman. And now, well, I'm kind of sort of Black. I'm kind of sort of Black. We don't get to pick and choose when um, the day is right for Blackness. We have to deal with um, systematic white supremacy and anti-Black racism on a daily basis. So that's the thing that brings us together. That's our common ground. 
of course, we're coming off this this conversation that Jocelyn Hernandez has has been having publicly. And one of the things that has been raised is the issue of Afro-Latinos and their claim to Blackness, so to speak. So, Tanya, I would love to read you some statistics when it comes to kind of how a lot of um, Latinos view themselves. So a Pew survey found that about three in 10 Afro-Latinos selected white as their race, 25% chose black and 23% selected, quote, some other race. Do you think that some Latinos want to distance themselves from blackness? Well, I mean, I think that first we need some clarity about Latinos. They're a pan-ethnic grouping. What is the factual distinction between Latinos and those who consider themselves to be Hispanic? And then, as we all know, when you're filling out those forms, it'll say Hispanic, non-white. Within Hispanic, there are racial um, separations. So help us understand that. First thing to keep in mind is that Latinidad, Latinos, are not a race group unto themselves. They may experience racialization to the extent that you know they get um, harassed by police based on their Latino surname. Uh, and so in that respect, it's not just like being any other immigrant group because they're being treated as an undesirable other. Uh, but nevertheless, Latinos come from locations in which we have blackness and whiteness and indigeneity. Right? That is to say, when some of those Latinos are picking white, it's because they're straight up white. They look white, they sound white, they're whitey white. <laughs> um, and they would be white in their countries of origin and they're white here too. But I wanna be very clear, we have white people <laughs> in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, and they don't become really non-white by being here. One, the slave ships didn't just stop here <laughs> in the United States. In point of fact, historians say that only 3.5% of the transatlantic slave trade, those the 10.7 million people who survived the Middle Passage, only 3.5% of them were brought to the United States, what we now call the United States. Whereas the rest, 90%, were looking at the Caribbean and Latin America. Part of the confusion, of course, is that in trying to have social justice movements across decades that bring many people together, a rainbow coalition in the Jesse Jackson, you know, frame of things, Latinos have been invited to be people of color. That's a beautiful thing, right? To, right? to talk about all Latinos as one thing uh, hides the ways in which Afro-Latinos statistically across jurisdictions or locations have much more in common from a socioeconomic perspective with African-Americans and other people of African descent, Haitians, Africans, et cetera, than they do their fellow Latinos. I look at all the ways in which the Afro-Latino subject is not like other Latinos, uh, in the research I did for the book, Racial Innocence, Unmasking Latino Anti-Black Bias, because it's very systematic and has structural components. So, Tariq, do you think that there needs to be a distinction between those whose ancestors came off the boat in the United States of America and those who came off the boat in other places? Is that really the common denominator when it comes to Blackness? It, it should be the common denominator, but what's interesting, a lot of these other groups who come here as immigrants, they make a distinction themselves to other themselves away from us. The same anti-Black racism and segregation 
that we have here to a certain degree. When you go to certain Latin American countries, the black people are on this side of the island or the country, and the lighter ones on this other side of the country. So that whole metalar la raza mindset that's down there in South America and Central America and Latin America, we can't allow that to happen here. And this is why we're saying- Explain that. What is that? Every Latina needs a white boy. Yes, I said it. Uh Uh-uh. Absolutely not. Mejorar la raza has declined. There's a saying in Latin American culture, metalar la raza, mean improve the race, mean whiten up the race. Mean if you mate with somebody, get with somebody lighter so that the race can be lighter. Now, so far in this conversation, we've really been talking about self-identity, how we identify racially. But we all know that race is a social construct. In most cases, it is the world that identifies us as a particular race based on how we look. Tariq, is this even something that people have power or control over? Or will we be identified the way that the world sees us based on how we look? We speak about Jocelyn and um, um, Amber Rose having their argument and Jocelyn was telling her about um, her not being black enough. What's interesting, when Jocelyn got arrested after one of those reality TV show fights, her mugshot and her jail record popped up online. Jocelyn herself is classified as white on her own paperwork. So there are a lot of dark-skinned Afro-Latinos who will sit there and classify themselves as white, just like the other people in Latin American society. Tanya, I'm curious to your thoughts on that. We all got a big fight across the globe. And here's another thing. When we think about ourselves in isolation geographically, you know, just the Black people of the U.S., just the Black people of Venezuela, and so on and so forth, is that what we dis- how we may disadvantage ourselves by not having the same number of one fellow travelers, right, to help us in the fight. We do have a right to say, hey, we don't want that person speaking for us. That person is illegitimate when they try to speak on Black issues because they're not going to speak in our best interest because they have dual allegiances to other cultures. See, that's the thing that we have, even with Latino society. When they come around us, everything is kind of ratchet and everything is kind of degraded. Just like the love and hip-hop crowd, many of them are um, Caribbean and Afro-Latino. They act a certain way around us and put that under the banner of blackness, which is a degenerate type of behavior. But when they go to the Latin Music Awards or they do anything culturally Latin, everybody's on their P's and Q's. Everybody's not doing anything that's derogatory or something that's going to make the whole Latin community look bad. So we have issues with that. So then where does that leave, say, someone like Clarence Thomas or Candace Owens, people who are unquestionably visually Black, but who a lot of people would question their allegiance to the Black community. I have to keep reminding you that I don't want to be a part of this culture. I want to destroy it. Candace Owens has identified as Caribbean. She has said over and over, her family, I think they're from St. Thomas somewhere, part of the family. So she has um, many times identified as Caribbean and talked about how successful Caribbeans are over Black Americans. So she has a dual allegiance, and this is why she cannot be a spokesperson for us. This is why she goes out of her way to undermine Black society. And and Clarence Thomas, he's somebody who's just an old school, what we call a Sambo. Sorry, go ahead, Tanya. I'm going to give you the last word. Oh, I would just simply say that, you know, Tariq, we actually are identifying them, but we don't get the platform, meaning the white Latinos, right, that they have, they command a lot of space. All the same race hierarchies that you hear in English in the United States exist within Latin American and Latino uh, communities as well. And so that's, I think, another way in which we can sort of lose sight of how much we have in common because we're getting subsumed as if we're the same as 
all these white Latinos or the one or the wannabes, as opposed to the straight up Afro Latinos who have been very clear all along about who they are, but the white Latinos don't want to give us the time of day. But here's the thing, sister, there are a lot of people in these Latino organizations that they've never called out the George Zimmerman. They've never called out Officer Yanez, who killed our brother um, up there in um, uh, Minnesota. Um, they're not calling out Enrique Terrio, the guy from the Proud Boys, who's a, a Cuban, who looks an Afro-Cuban. You have another Latino, Nick Fuentes, who's a suspected white supremacist running around here. And nobody from the Latino community, they're calling, they're not saying anything about these people. So it's up to us to draw the line, this line in the sand and say, hey, there's a problem over there that you guys have to deal with before we get into this whole minority coalition thing. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Tanya and Tariq, thank you both very much for your time. Next up, we're heading to a place where Black men can lay their burdens down. Find out about this safe space when we come back. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. As the saying goes, how you gonna win when you ain't right within? Well, these days, Black people are increasingly prioritizing our mental health. Little Rock, Arkansas native Lorenzo Lewis is making sure that Black men do just that. Through the I Confess project, he's turned his personal pain into a mission to help millions of Black men tackle their own trauma. This is Stand Up For, presented by State Farm. Since we emerged from isolation during the pandemic, our mental health has spiraled. A 2021 study revealed that nearly half of Americans reported symptoms of anxiety or depression, and many are self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And according to research by Columbia University, black people are 20% more likely to experience mental health problems. But since mental health has long been stigmatized in our community, too few of us reach out for help. And when we do, we rarely see anyone that looks like us, which only leads to more hesitancy in seeking treatment. According to the two leading psychiatric and psychological associations, black people make up only 2% of the estimated 41,000 psychiatrists in the U.S. and only 4% of psychologists. But there is some good news. More of us, including celebrities like Jay-Z, Michelle Obama, and Taraji P. Henson, are opening up about our struggles, and there is help out there for you. I am very pleased to introduce someone who overcame his own mental health problems and has now devoted his life to helping others. Lorenzo Lewis is the founder of The Confess Project, a movement to solve mental health disparities in communities of color, which has now reached over 2.4 million people across 52 cities and 29 states. Lorenzo, thank you for joining us today on Stand Up For, presented by State Farm. We appreciate you being here. Absolutely. We're glad to be here. Thank you so much. So I would love to, to get a little bit of background on how you got into this work, uh, mental health, and as it pertains to Black people especially. What are some some of the challenges that you had to overcome growing up? I always tell people my story started off, you know, born in jail to an incarcerated mother, and um, I faced incarceration at the age of 17 myself. You know, just going through the challenges of not being around my mother and father growing up, that brought about a, a myriad of anxiety, depression, 
isolation, just not feeling like I was loved and wanted, and just recognizing what that did to me as a young person. Um, it really um, shifted my life in, a many, in many ways. And, you know, I had to do a lot to obviously overcome that. And, you know, through mentorship and support, I was able to obviously find a gateway to really getting, I believe now, to this place where I can actually help other people see that they can make it through as well. But it sounds like you were coming from a place that didn't have a lot of resources, yeah. and certainly yeah. there were not a lot of resources to help with mental health treatment for a young yeah. person struggling the way that you were. So how did you find your way out of that darkness and then yeah. do the work required to heal? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my aunt and uncle were just uh, people that went to work every day trying to make something happen for our family. And they, they were raising you? Yes, yeah, they, they were raising me. You know, my aunt had a beauty salon. And so one of my first mentors there, I got a guy named Sylvester that um, I found hope with as a young person. Now, finding other people like him, you know, uh, coaches at school and just different people in my community, but that allowed me to grow beyond the challenges that I was facing. What was the attitude towards mental health in, in the home you were growing up in? <sighs> it was taboo, <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of it was we could pray it away and you know, nothing is really wrong with you, right? And, you know, and, and I think a lot of it was just, it was the shame that came along with it. So it was always this, this secretive notion around, we got to keep this private. And mental health, when it comes to black men especially, I feel yeah. like is something that people don't talk about enough. Yes. Now looking back with mm -hmm. the perspective that you have, what were you seeing yeah. happening with your peers? Well, you know, right now, data says that, you know, suicide is the third leading cause of death for young black men between the ages of 18 and 24. Mm -hmm. And when I think about those numbers, it really makes sense. It makes sense from a myriad of ways when we think about the way that black males communicate with each other, the way that we're, you know, raised without fathers in the home or, you know, the things that we see in media, on TV, stoicism and, and with our masculinity. And I believe that we have to, you know, think of ways to engage a healthy culture around conversation about mental health and um, really just embrace that there is hope in the journey. I've always been feeling in a depressed state and um, I never knew why. I know, I still don't know why. It's been rooted in our community where we will be quiet and not really talk about our mental state. We don't say much or we don't talk much. Now you talk about some of the mentors that you found that were able to help you in yeah. some of your struggles. What did that look like? So a lot of it was just the relationship, you know. Um, obviously if it was going to my aunt's beauty salon and the, the barber there that worked would just encourage me through making good grades and staying out of trouble. You mentioned the barber. Yes. And there is a tie with your project. Tell me about the Confessed Project and how that's related to barbers and hairstylists. Yeah, so the Confessed Project is a national mental health awareness movement that focuses on training barbers and stylists to be mental health advocates. With the curriculum that's been evaluated by Harvard University, we focus on four key areas, um, active listening, um, positive communication, stigma reduction, and validation. They're able to use these skills as a way of helping their client that may just be facing difficulties in their life and or just figuring out a way to need to navigate life. Uh, we're not training them to be therapists or psychiatrists. However, uh, those are similar frameworks that they do use that our barbers are able to use in this specific training that's able to really help people be their best self. Thank you all for being here today. I think the most important part of why I really came here today is to really so that I can exhibit to you all how we can break through our pain and how that part of that being our purpose 
So they do the things that you mentioned, the listen, the active listening, mm -hmm. the validation, and then do they refer people to additional resources or is it really just about that moment? Yeah, so we partner with local therapists, um, hospital systems, um, government agencies um, across the country. Our barbers are able to refer those people um, to those different resources. And so I think that's really a game changer is that this is not just someone cutting your hair or doing your hair. I thought it was very powerful seeing black men coming together, hugging and sharing that valuable moment together. And you could see it in their eyes and in their emotion. And why barbers and hairstylists? <laughs> you know, I would, I, was, I would go to my aunt's beauty salon um, every day, getting off the school bus. And, you know, I, I took it for granted a lot of days because I didn't want to be there, you know, like a lot of adults, you know, women, you know, doing hair, talking, and obviously I'm, I want to be at home playing the video game, right? <laughs> or, or outside doing so. But my, my, my first mentor, Sylvester, was a barber there, and he really um, allowed me to feel seen and heard as a young person. And, um, you know, that trust that I had with him was really the idea of what we've birthed today with the Confess Project. And as I look back on it, I want other young men to have a Sylvester in their life. To be completely honest, it was the first time I've ever heard a black man talk about his struggles with mental health or his emotions with feeling like he's low, feeling like he's in that hole that he can't get out of. And that's a feeling that I felt before growing up. a spiritual component when we're talking about hair and I, and I ask that with hair specifically you know the Bible talks about the strength of hair yeah. people feel very differently when they cut their hair they often cut their hair in times of mm. grief or mourning or renewal is there a spiritual connection with the fact that this is a hair service well you know when you really go back and think about barbers in the most historical context you know um, they were seen as, you know, doctors in our community. And you even think about a barber um, using a metal sharp object towards a male's face. Um, that is a very intimate moment. And so when you have someone that intimately close to you, uh, there could be a spiritual connection to you to really trust them more. And I'm glad that we've evaluated that now through science to show that they can truly be gatekeepers. I'm here in the underground of Atlanta, and you're about to see me walk inside of Legends Barbershop, one of the first barbershops that really welcomed us into Atlanta. This is where we train barbers to be mental health advocates. Hey there, Mike, how you doing, man? What's up? Welcome um, back to the A, man. Yes, sir, yes, sir. What's up? Where it all started here, man. You, you let us know what the project was all about. We was all in. Yes, sir. We're still all in, and uh, just happy to be a part of it. Have you been able to look at mental health differently now since being exposed to our work. Oh, absolutely. A lot of our clients have been coming here for 5, 10, 15, 20 years or more. So they're, mm. they're easily to open up yep. more so with us than, you know, the average guy. They yep. come in, they talk about it, and then they go on with their day, you know. We're not realizing the effect that we may actually have mm. with that particular client in that particular situation. Oh, so it's, oh. a learning, it's a learning experience all the way around. Mm. That's powerful. That's powerful. Thank you for coming out. Right, uh, we really appreciate it. Wellness is important to this administration, and that's why I'm working with uh, guys like Lorenzo and his team here at the Confess Project. We want to make sure that people are able to not just survive, but to thrive, to have a life that's meaningful, 
And so, you know, anytime an organization steps up, like the Confess Project, to be able to help people uh, deal with the challenges of life, uh, it's important to us. What do you think black men specifically need when it comes to mental health? We need more safe spaces, right? To be heard and to be seen, and I believe that's professionals and, and, and our system in general that continue to invest into the lives of black men, and I, whether that's you know partnerships, um, working with community organizations like the Confess Project. I believe that all of that's going to continue to help to grow the life expectancy of, of black men. You know, you've had this amazing journey. You've gone through the darkness, you've come into the light, and now you're sharing that light with so many other people. But sometimes the healer needs healing. <laughs> what keeps you grounded today? You know, having my wife and, and my daughter, I believe, is, has, has really anchored me um, to, to just reflect on family. When I've traveled across the country, one thing, I've seen a, a gap in the unity in family. And so I think that's something that's kept me grounded. I also believe just continuing to have my own support system as well. You know, I've been through countless trauma-informed therapy sessions um, to really overcome a lot of the things that I went through. I really still dealt with a lot of the deep childhood traumas and I hadn't overcome. And so I just really overcame them probably three months ago. I'm working with a trauma-informed therapist, someone who really deals with trauma um, and really gets to the root of it. And so I just, I encourage people to really dive deeper into our own things that we have went through and really, um, you know, work through those things. And I think that's, that's really helped me now moving forward in life, so. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing for the community, for black men, and for sharing your story. Because sharing the story and helping break the stigma <laughs> yes. is such an important part of the work. Absolutely, thank you. Lorenzo, <laughs> thank you for being here. Well, this is an important reminder that you do not need to suffer in silence. If you are struggling with mental health, you can take action right now. For young men of color, please visit the confessprojectofamerica.org to learn more about Lorenzo's amazing organization. Thank you to State Farm for sponsoring today's episode of Stand Up For. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Lorenzo's work is a real gift to our community and the barbers across the country that are working with him are absolutely saving lives. Stay with us, there's a lot more Revolt Black News Weekly on the other side of the break. Well, hip hop is 50, y'all. To honor the big day, there were celebrations and special concerts all across the country, giving the ingenious, creative, culture-bending lifestyle its due. So you know we had to do something special here at Revolt Black News. In case you missed it, head over to the Revolt app for the special Revolt Black News presents Hip Hop's Golden Anniversary celebrating 50 years. We have music, fashion, money, all the ways hip hop has influenced our culture and the world. You do not want to miss it. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download that Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.
Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.